Good morning, friends. I want to uh, walk you through what Will and Christy have just so carefully read for you. That was a lot to cover, was it not? If you're visiting with us this morning and don't own a copy of the Bible, uh, you will really want to have one in front of you for what we're going to do together this morning. So I want to tell you that we've got them within arm's reach of where you're sitting right now and that you'll find what was just been read for you on page 876 of the Bibles that we've provided there. Finally, I want to say, please take that with you when you leave this morning. We would love to give it to you as our gift to you, and we'd love to talk to you further afterwards about what you're going to hear from us uh, today, including these next minutes together as we walk through uh, some of the, the final scenes in this wonderful book of Acts that's been our focus for these last few months. We've been watching the Apostle Paul for most of the last few months. We've seen this character developing into one of the most effective and influential leaders in the history of the world. And story by story, we watched him develop into the kind of man who could write letters that are still shaping us. Even today, our church draws from the letters that he wrote then. We've seen him become the kind of man who had that insight, that creativity, that vision that we're still benefiting from now. We've seen him, we've seen him acting like a like an energizer bunny, just going and going and going. Nothing can keep him down. A man of vision and passion who knows where he wants to go and goes hard and fast. A man who dreams big, keeps on going against intense opposition and in great danger and despite an exhaustion I can't even imagine as he's carried on an itinerary that I've never come close to, to, to filling myself. And to whatever extent we've come to understand this man, not just as an interesting historical figure, but as a human, like us. To whatever extent we've seen him going like this, leading like this, driven as he was by a love for his Savior and for the people who would come to know him. To whatever extent we've become impressed and even moved by this incredible but, but human life and come to love this man, to that extent, what happens next is very difficult to watch. Because this man so driven, this man so full of passion and vision, this man so compelling as a leader of others who sets his own course and always follows it through, we now find at the mercy of powers far greater than he can resist. A man hemmed in on one side by the hatred of the Jews who want him dead and would tear him to pieces. And on the other side, by Roman authorities who only want to save their own skin and don't care anything for Paul. A man falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned, totally vulnerable, and completely alone. Or so it seems to us on the surface. It seems like Paul in these stories and in what's still to come is nothing but a puppet pulled this way and that by powerful people who have agendas they didn't consult him on. Agendas that have nothing to do with his well-being or with what he wants to see from his life. Full of, full, full of circumstances, day in, day out, that nobody would ever want for themselves. That's Paul's story from this point forward. But one key to understanding Acts that we've come back to over and over, wherever we've had opportunity. One set of lenses through which we must look at every story we come across in this book. One thing we've told you to ask of each story as you read it. What is God doing here? Because beneath the details and the various characters that come and go, 
beneath the humans that we come to understand and even to love. In this story, from beginning to end, God is always the main character. He's the one whose agenda is setting the course. He's the one whose power is carrying it through. He's the one who knows exactly where this is going and will see it all the way to the end. And when we look at this set of stories, not just for what it would have been like for Paul, we can see just beneath the surface of these stories a golden thread we owe it to ourselves to pull on all the way to the end. We need to come to these stories not for what on the surface is being done to Paul, but for what under the surface God is doing in and through Paul. Because when we see this story through what God is doing, well, then we realize Paul is no puppet just being pulled around by a bunch of strings that others have held in their hands. He's not being tossed around by this wave and that wave of circumstance. No, it's more like Paul is being fashioned, has been fashioned for all of his life, like an arrow perfectly crafted with a point just so and a shaft just brightly balanced and, and tail feathers all in exactly the same place now pulled back and fired by an expert marksman who knows exactly what he's shooting at. What we see in these stories, if we have eyes to see, is a man whose every detail in his life, from far before he knew of Christ, has been fashioned by the God who is now putting him to use in exactly the way he always intended to. And if we can see God and what's happening to Paul, it'll be easier for us to see God and what's happening to us. Now, we're covering so much ground this morning, friends, that I just want to tell you right now, it's going to be a little bit different toward a sermon than what you're used to hearing from me. We got a lot of ground to cover. It took 10 plus minutes just to read it. How long must it take to actually give every detail here what it's due? Not going to try. What I'm going to do is try to pull this thread all the way through these stories. What is God doing in who God has made Paul to be and in what God is now aiming Paul to accomplish for his kingdom? I want to pull these, this thread through each of these stories and save the payoff for us for the end, though I promise we'll get there. Here's how I want to frame it. I want you to see that in each one of these major stories about Paul, we see a part of Paul's identity that God has installed in his life for just this moment. We see Paul and everything God has made him to be aimed like an arrow at the target God has set for him. I want to show you first Paul, the Roman citizen. That's what comes out in this first scene. Scene one in our story picks up just as Paul has finished his testimony before the crowd in Jerusalem. They're not impressed with what they've just heard. They've heard just enough to want him dead. They're unraveling. They're shouting. They're throwing cloaks and flinging dust into the air. I take it that these were meaningful symbolic actions that have been lost on us over time. But it doesn't sound good. It's madness. The Roman tribune who's in charge takes action. But for Paul, that's not a good thing. This guy just wants to save his own skin. He wants to suppress this riot. He doesn't want to get a reputation as a tribune who can't keep people in order. So not knowing anything about what's going on, his decision is, let's take Paul, let's tie him to the rack, and let's flog him. Paul's been through a lot by this point. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been imprisoned. He's been at the mercy of crowds like this one before. But Paul has never been flogged. Because not many people could sustain a flogging and live to tell about it. 
This was a very specific and brutal form of punishment in the Roman Empire that involved a devastating whip with, with many, many tassels that had bone and, and, and metal and glass embedded in them, woven into them so that they do maximum damage. They were used, it was used as a tool of torture to extract information, but from a source that you didn't care about, a source that you had promised nothing to, a source that you were fine to let die as long as you could get what you wanted out of them. That's where Paul finds himself when he first opens his mouth, tied up, completely vulnerable, and ready for the whip. And somehow, this man, in this position, has the presence of mind and the calm to raise one of the finer points of Roman law with the man who's holding the whip. Is it lawful for you, verse 25, to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? You can see how serious this question really was by how these men respond to it when he's asked them. Roman, in the Roman Empire, life was cheap. I mean, let's not, let's not cut any corners on that. There wasn't a, a high premium placed on human life as human life. But in the Roman Empire, a Roman life was not cheap. A Roman life was a life that counted. There was a bright line drawn between how much a Roman was worth and how much a barbarian from the provinces was worth. A barbarian like Paul from the province like Judea. There were strict rules about what could be done to a citizen. There were crucial rights that no one could violate. That's why everybody starts passing this buck up the food chain. The centurion stops, stops what's going on and he goes to the tribune. Hey, tribune, did you know this man you're about to flog? No, not me. I'm just following orders. This man you're about to flog is a Roman citizen? And the tribune takes his point. He pulls back for the same reason he was going to do this to Paul in the first place. He wants to save his own skin. Paul's not important to him, but he wants to get out of this thing alive. Now, now why tell this story? A story that ultimately goes nowhere. He almost gets whipped. He doesn't actually get whipped. Why is it here? I think the key is in verse 28. When this tribune finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen, his mind is blown because verse 28 says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul replies, I'm a citizen by birth. Now we know from what we heard Paul preach in Acts chapter 17, back when he was in Athens, what Paul has in mind when he tells them that he's a citizen by birth. In Acts 17, Paul had preached that God, the sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, he made man from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, every person who's ever been made from every place on earth, speaking every language and carrying every citizenship is exactly where they are because God put them there. When Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen by birth, he knows God gave me exactly what I needed to survive this situation and carry on my mission. And he gave it to me on the day I was born. For some people, being a citizen of Rome was a major point of pride. 
That wasn't an option for Paul. He knows he did nothing to earn it or buy it. It's not a point of pride for him. It's not something he leads with or wears as a bright, shiny pin on his cloak. It took a near flogging to actually get it out of him that he's a Roman citizen in the first place. But Paul was absolutely willing to use this part of his identity and leverage it for all it was worth to carry on the work that really mattered to him, to to, to lean into his true identity as a servant of Christ and an ambassador. And he knows that behind this citizenship is the hand of God who gave it to him for just this moment. The same God who gave him his calling and set him up with the protection he'd need to carry it on. Scene number one gives us Paul, the Roman citizen, at the mercy of these powers he can't resist, but exactly as God designed him to be for exactly God's purposes. Same theme comes up in another way in the next scene of our story. There we see not Paul, the Roman citizen, but Paul, the Pharisee. Our next scene adds another layer to Paul's identity by birth. Part of the providence of God that now serves his calling as a Christian. So here's what happens. The tribune on the next day calls for Paul and puts him before the council. This is not a friendly court. This is the same Sanhedrin that that had Jesus crucified. This is a hostile crowd. They're not objective. And it starts out ugly and ends with another riot. There's your brackets if you want to sum up what happens here. But I want to draw your attention to what Paul says about himself, how how Paul uses another part of his identity, another part of who God uh, ordered him to be. It's training from from his earliest days that have provided him with yet another opportunity to highlight the truth about Jesus. Come with me now into into, uh, into chapter 23, verse 6. Let's zoom in here. Paul's standing before this, this court, this council, known as the Sanhedrin. And he perceived, verse 6 says, that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. So he cries out, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Paul sees in this, he sees in this little council a very strategic opportunity. He swings and he does not miss. He knows that, these, that this, this one council is made up of two specific groups who do not like one another. The Sadducees, who are sort of the highbrow, sort of upper crust, more intellectual, more, more, material, uh, more materialistic group here, the ones that were, would have been a little more suspicious of the kind of supernatural spiritualism of the Pharisees, they're on one side. On the other side is the Pharisees, who, who did believe in a spirit world, who, who did believe that, for example, in the end, our ultimate hope is that we would be resurrected from the dead one day. The Sadducees says no, say no. The Pharisees say yes. Paul knows. And he stirs the pot a little bit. He lets them know, I am a Pharisee. And, and, and in doing so, he zeroes in on what he wants the true issue of this trial to really be. Not whether or not he's broken some law. He hasn't. But what message he has gone around all over this part of the world preaching every chance he gets. That the resurrection is not just a promise, but a reality. The resurrection is something that has shown up in the life of Jesus who died and then rose again. Paul uses his identity as a Pharisee to put 
the central hope of Christianity right at the center of what's happening to him here. And yeah, he knows it's going to make the meeting fall apart. Yeah, it turns into a riot that's no longer about him. It's about all of these petty divisions that they've probably been building over years and years and years, even beyond the theological disagreements they have. He knows what he's doing. He's wise and well-trained. But in the providence of God, there's more going on here. This Paul who was born to a Pharisee, this Paul who was trained as a Pharisee himself, now uses what he trained for as a platform for seeing and explaining the truth about Jesus. Do you see that? To me, one of the most eye-catching things here in this story is how Paul unapologetically calls himself a Pharisee. If you've read the stories about Jesus and his interactions with Pharisees, you know, these are supposed to be the bad guys. These are the ones who are always coming at Jesus. They always want him dead. And Jesus, is, he holds nothing back. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them cups that are clean on the outside but really dirty on the inside. He, he warns them of a woe that's going to come for them. That's woe, that means bad thing, not like woe. Jesus holds nothing back when he talks to these Pharisees. But here Paul is standing up saying, I am one. The difference is that Jesus was calling out the heart behind many who were Pharisees, the heart of self-righteousness, the heart of pride that made that identity for them a piece of how they knew they were better than others. But Paul wants to focus in not on the hearts of those who call themselves Pharisees, but on the beliefs that the Pharisee movement was organized around. Because on those beliefs, especially the belief of the resurrection, he's still with them in lockstep. And I think what we see here is that Paul's life and training as a Pharisee was not a diversion. He doesn't see it as a former life that he rejected now, as unfortunate and wasted. His life as a Pharisee, as incomplete as his faith was at that time, was, in, was still a training for, for this moment. Because it was there that he learned how to find the hope of the resurrection all through the Old Testament scriptures. He was primed and ready to see Jesus as this key that fits perfectly into that lock so that he would be able to do what we've been watching him do. Keep Jesus and his resurrection as the main thing and stop after stop and sermon after sermon, whether he's talking to Jews or to pagans. And to sum it up, in the way Paul defines what's going on in this scene, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Friends, I, I don't want to beat this horse any more than I already have. I just want to make sure you can see that on the surface, it looks, this looks like a man thrown around like a football. It looks like he's a puppet pulled up on some strings that are now being yanked back and forth by people who just don't really care about him and, and, and even want him dead. He's hated and unregarded. That's on one level. But on a deeper level, in truth, this is a man perfectly prepared by God for this moment, for this opportunity, for his calling to highlight the truth at the center of all of our hope. What looks like chaos is just a perfectly designed plan, perfectly playing out. Probably my, my favorite scene in what we're covering this morning comes next. We've seen Paul, the Roman citizen. We've seen Paul, the Pharisee. Next, I want to show you Paul, the uncle. Paul, the uncle. 
Probably, uh, again, probably this is my favorite scene because it's got a little bit of everything. I love it partly because it's an awesome action-packed escape scene fit for the big screen. I love it also partly, though, because it's just this little glimpse through a window into Paul's family life. Did you know that, that Paul the Apostle was also Paul the uncle? Let me walk, th- walk through this scene with you. The scene begins the night after things got real in the council. Paul's been whisked away by the soldiers from an angry crowd of Jewish leaders because the tribune thought he'd be torn to pieces. That's what we're told at the end of the last scene in verse 10 of chapter 23. Now, the following night, Paul's alone. He's in prison with a lot of time on his hands. And if you can imagine Paul as human, it's not tough to imagine what he felt in that prison cell. Did he relive the scene? I would have. Did he imagine himself torn to pieces? Boy, I would have. He had told his friends in Ephesus back in Acts 20 that he'd been sensing for a long time, at stop after stop after stop on his missionary journey, he'd been sensing for a long time, long before he got to Jerusalem, that something awful was going to happen to him when he got there. Was this it? Knowing Paul, he probably thought less about the pain and terror of what was likely to come than than the grief of losing out on what now seemed like so unlikely to happen in his future. This was a man with plans. He dreamed of taking the gospel further and further and further west. He wanted to see Rome. He wanted to go to Spain. Now that wasn't going to happen. How disappointing would that be for a man like Paul? How short this life, how far short of what we hope for, we so often fall. It just, it just isn't hard to imagine the fear and the grief he would have wrestled with on that night. And therefore, it is not hard to imagine what a comfort it must have been when, as Luke puts it, verse 11, the Lord Jesus stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Translation, all the stuff going down right now is no diversion. It's not even a disappointment. You're going exactly where I want you to go to do exactly what I called you to do. You're going to talk to the Romans about the same facts you've been telling to anyone who will listen, the same facts for which you're now on trial, my death, my resurrection, Paul's headed right where God wants him to go. So now look at how he gets there. This is verse 12. Luke tells us that the morning after Paul's vision, still frustrated they couldn't get their hands on Paul the days before, a group of Jews comes up with a plan to capture and kill him. In verse 13, Luke says there was more than 40 of them. And they double down. They actually take a vow that they won't eat or drink until Paul was dead by their hands. Their plan is simple. They asked the chief priests and the elders to call for a follow-up examination. Ask the tribune to bring him back so that you can keep questioning him about what's at stake here. But you, along with the council, once you've given notice to bring him down, as though you're going to determine his, his, his case more exactly, you're just setting us up for our plan. Look at what they say. We'll be ready to kill him before he comes near. They're wanting to hatch a plan that involves the council in this ambush plot. And it sounds airtight. And supposing they had the numbers to pull it off, this one is a plan that should have worked. Except for one crucial mistake they didn't account for. They failed to close their loop. 
Somehow, someway, somebody talks to the wrong person about this plan. Somebody tells it, Luke says, to the son of Paul's sister. Paul's nephew, who's not just going to stand around and watch Uncle Paul get murdered. This nephew, Luke says, went into the barracks and tells Paul. Paul calls a centurion and tells him. The centurion sends the nephew to the tribune to tell him what's going on. And now, for some reason, even the tribune takes it all seriously. Boy, does he ever. He tells Paul, look, he tells Paul's nephew, keep this to yourself. Don't let on that I'm wise to all of it. Meanwhile, he pulls out all the stops. He says, we're going to raise up to, to fight back against this band of only 40 people. He calls two centurions to raise a troop of 200 soldiers, plus 70 horsemen, plus 200 more Spearmen, all to head north for Caesarea, another Roman outpost on the Mediterranean coast. He is pulling out all the stops to protect Paul, taking no chances with a full-on armored escort paid for by the Roman taxpayer. And Paul is off on the way toward Rome to testify to Jesus just as he'd done in Jerusalem. Now zoom back out for a minute with me here. What's going on? On one level, Paul is like a chess piece in a game between Roman officials and Jewish leaders who don't like one another but don't care anything for Paul either. On another level, God has prepared this situation to get Paul to where God wants him to go. God made him a Roman citizen. God made him the son of a Pharisee, heir to the best training on the importance of the resurrection that anyone could get back then. And God made him the sister of a woman who had a son who would be right there in earshot of the plot to destroy Paul's life. Paul is no puppet. This is no diversion. Paul's identity, all of it, his birth, his citizenship, his training, even his family tree, all that God made him to be, God fashioned for his purposes. And no band of 40 was going to get in the way. And this matters most, friends, for right now, what happens next. Because Paul the Roman citizen, who is Paul the Pharisee, who is also Paul the uncle, all by God's providence, all for God's purposes, is also Paul the prisoner. And that's no accident either. Follow with me this final part of Paul's story. Picking up in, at the end after Paul has been transferred up to Caesarea where the governor Felix was, was ruling after this letter about the situation has been presented to Governor Felix, picking up with me now at the beginning of chapter 24, Governor Felix calls for an examination. It would have been a really nice climax if these nearly 500 soldiers marched with Paul all the way to Rome itself. You know, Jesus has just promised that's where we're all going. You're going to Rome, Paul. I promise you're going to testify to me there just like he did back in Jerusalem. And, and can you imagine Paul on a horse they provided for, surrounded by all these armed guards saying, wow, Jesus, thanks for getting right on that. This is great. Can you imagine him being ushered all the way to Rome itself and dropped off with compliments and no need for a tip right there at Caesar's palace? That would have been great too. For a moment, it almost looks like that will happen until we realize that actually this armored guard has just taken him from one prison to another. And what Luke wants us to see here from this point forward most clearly is that Paul's innocent. He does not deserve what's happening to him. This is not right. First, we see him accused 
falsely by men with an agenda. That's what happens at the beginning of chapter 24 when they enter into this mock trial. The high priest Ananias comes down with some elders and a spokesman, a guy named Tertullus. They lay before the governor their case against Paul. And as soon as Tertullus opens up his mouth, he begins to lie. First, he lies about how great Felix is. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. <laughs> Incorrect. Not who Felix was. He was a notoriously brutal ruler. He was one of Rome's instruments for what they called peace, but what looked to everyone else like desolation, wasteland. Everyone knew that. He wasn't known for being kind to the Jewish people he ruled over. Tertullus is softening him up. He's trying to get him to do exactly what he wants to do. And what he wants, what he wants is Paul on a pike. So in verse 5, he lies again. He accuses Paul of, of being someone who's going around stirring up riots. See, that, he knows that's what the Romans need to hear to take this seriously. This man is a threat to the peace that you think will keep you in your job. But we know better than that. At every stop where there's been a riot, Paul's just been speaking. He's just been talking to anyone who will listen. It's the Jews who stirred up the riots against him in response to what he said. Then next, Tertullus accuses him of, of being someone who's profaned the temple. Again, we know, we just saw this. That's not what happened at all. In fact, Paul bent over backwards to make sure that everything he did was in, in accordance with the laws he'd followed all of his life. He carefully went through the purification rituals to go into the temple where he was arrested. He didn't profane anything. He respects this system that he grew up with. And that's what Paul says. He sums up his own defense basically in verse 20. Look, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul speaks the truth. I'm a faithful Jew. I still believe everything I used to believe. I still believe what you're all supposed to believe. I just believe the resurrection we've been waiting for has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know what I know about him. He's not here because he did anything wrong. That's why Luke tells the story the way he does. He wants you to know that. He's been falsely accused by men with an agenda. And as soon as he's been falsely accused, then he's just secondly toyed with by the one meant to protect him. See, Felix, he can tell that this is a bogus case against Paul. So far, so good. If you're rooting for Paul here, you're glad to know that Felix, with an accurate knowledge of the way, verse 22, put them off. Basically just stalls, saying when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. So far, so good. And maybe, compared with what we've seen Paul get so far, it seems nice, even like a mercy, that, that he orders the centurion to, to, to let Paul have some liberty. Verse 23. Let his friends come in and, and attend to his needs. But this is no mercy. Think about it. With charges like these, with zero evidence to support them, with his own Roman citizenship in his back pocket and his good name, Paul shouldn't have been kept in prison at all. What's he doing here? Who does Felix think he is? 
holding in captivity a man he knows has done nothing wrong. It's Felix's job to protect him from those who are out to get him. And he totally fails. Luke tells us why in verse 26. At the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. He wants a bribe. And worst of all, verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, now stop right here with me and try to imagine with me that Paul is human. Here is a man of immense personal integrity. In private and in public, he's obeyed God and honored his heritage and worked hard with his hands so he could share with others. He's been peaceful. He's been law-abiding. He's been upright in a world full of crooks and charlatans and hypocrites. And now he's being slandered in public and misunderstood by those who hear it and don't know him. He defends himself here because it does matter to him. The truth matters, but he's just speaking to the wind. This isn't right. How frustrating would it be to be subject to treatment like this? And here's a man of incredible passion and drive, a man whose whole life has been full of one stop after another in a, in a relentless itinerary of gospel expansion. This is a man who works a full-time job as a craftsman and still launches a global phenomenon in what amounts to his downtime. What must it have felt like for this man, as Paul, to be stuck in prison for two years with no end in sight and no credible charge against him and no trial date. Waiting, forgotten, unregarded, going nowhere. Can you imagine the claustrophobia for a man like Paul? Do you know what it feels like when something that means so much to you means so little to one with power over you? Can you imagine the personal violation and grief over all that he's not doing while he's sitting here in Felix's prison? Because, because Paul was human like you or me, I can only imagine he felt what we would feel. And he wouldn't be here by choice if he could have avoided it. But friends, at this point in Paul's life, At this point in Paul's life, he also knows his life is not just a ping pong ball for the powers that be. He knows better than to see himself as a puppet pulled this way and that by whoever can get a hold of the strings. He knows that he is an arrow crafted perfectly by God, fired expertly by God, the one who rules over all. And he knows that the God by whose providence he was a Roman citizen and a resurrection hoping Pharisee and an uncle to an eavesdropping nephew is the same God who's made him a prisoner. And he's here on purpose because God is working in him and through him. Did you notice, friends, what Paul is doing with his jail time when Will and Christie read that section for us earlier? Did you notice it? That he's spending his jail time evangelizing the man who's responsible for his suffering? <laughs> Who would do that? We're told here that, that Felix often sent for him, verse 26, and conversed with him. And Paul goes when he's called. We're told in verse 24 that, that one time Felix came down with his Jewish wife, Drusilla, 
to hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is always game for that. But look at the spin Paul put on the message when he got in front of them. He reasoned with them about righteousness. <laughs> what, what Felix was denying Paul through this travesty of justice. He speaks to him about self-control when Felix and Drusilla were known for the, the, the immorality that gave rise to their marriage. She had been married to someone else. Felix used his power, pulled his strings to steal her away for himself. Paul does that. How about some self-control, Felix? And, and, and the kicker, the coming judgment. When the God who loves every person made in his image and who perfectly accounts for every injustice committed against them will show up on this world that he rules to make sure that every injustice is accounted for. You can imagine why Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. Who is this guy? He won't try to barter. Much less, uh, far from offering a bribe, he won't even flatter me like Tertullus did when he said how grateful he was for all this peace. Now, instead of that, he's telling me to look to the judgment and to run to Christ. Who is this man who scoffs at death and needs nothing at all and even seems to want nothing? What do you do with a man like that? What do you do with someone who has no fear, who can't be bought, who doesn't cling to his life at all costs? Of course Felix was alarmed. Friends, Paul uses his jail time like this because Paul knows what's going on here. He has the eyes to see. He knows he's innocent. He would surely rather be on the road to Spain with his buddies right now than in this prison sentence that won't end. But he doesn't see this prison sentence as a roadblock. He sees it as an opportunity. He knows that in the providence of God, even innocent suffering is a carefully constructed platform. Even innocent suffering like his, like yours, is a carefully constructed platform on which we rise, stand, and give testimony to God's beauty and power. Now, friends, I don't know where you need to hear that today. And if we had more time, I've got, actually got a whole wonderful list of things that I think would help us from seeing this story. But because we don't have time, can I just share with you for a moment where I needed to hear this this week? How I needed to be reminded that things we'd never choose for ourselves, things that look so bad for what we want to see, can be God's providence building a platform to show his beauty and power more clearly. I, I needed it this week because I've been struggling with discouragement lately. I mean, this week I, I really resonated with, with Paul stuck in prison you know, with so many things that he wanted to do, so much he could be doing. Meanwhile, here he is cooped up, basically forgotten, waiting for, for he knows not what. And I know the parallels aren't exact, all right? I don't live in a Roman prison, neither do you. That, that's not where our church is right now. But, but at least for me, to, to be a local church in the COVID era has felt a little bit like being stuck. If not in prison, at least in a, in a set of circumstances that none of us would have ever asked for and that have had a really negative effect on our life together. There, there, it's not a prison, but there are some metaphorical bars between us and so much of what makes for a thriving and active and vibrant local church life. And lately, I've just felt a lot more weary of it all, more burdened by it than I have in a long time. 
and even felt some concern about the future. What would it mean to even come out of all of this? What will we be when we do? And I know I'm not the only one who's felt that, some of that. Friends, in a way, it's reminded me of, uh, of that story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal from 1 Kings 18. You know, where, where, where Elijah, in order to show the power of the Lord and how much greater he was than these false gods all around him, uh, asks the, 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 the men who were, who were preparing this sacrifice to soak the wood before he prays to God to send fire down and consume the sacrifice. Let, let's stack the deck <laughs> against the power of God and see what happens. In a way, I, I've been thinking about that because it kind of feels like that's what COVID, the COVID era, I don't mean the disease itself specifically, but just everything that it's brought to us. It kind of feels like that's what's, that's what, that's what's happened to us in this time. I'm, I'm as convinced as I have ever been that if you want to see the glory of the Lord show up on earth, the best place to look is the life of a local church. You'll see it more clearly in how these people love one another and how they take responsibility for one another and how they lean on one another for hope and life and perspective and peace and for the energy to get to heaven. That's where you'll see it if you want to see it more clearly than anywhere else. I believe it. But I think of the effects of these last couple of years as just buckets of water soaking the wood and the ground and nearly drowning all of us as if it's in his providence. God has, has stacked the odds against himself. You want to see God's glory at work? You'll see it here, but let's soak the wood first. Can we stay together when we disagree? Can we remember and pursue others when we feel forgotten ourselves? Can we keep showing up and investing in our times together when we gather even when we're not feeling it and it doesn't feel great? Can we display God's glory to one another even now, soaking wet with circumstances we didn't ask for? It's been tempting to, to, to me, especially lately, to think about what we're facing in this time, this hard time, as, as a threat to us, a threat to our life together and the work God has called us to do. And in a way, I guess it is. Of course, we, we wouldn't choose the circumstances we've been living under any more than Paul has, has chosen prison instead of a synagogue or a public theater for his venue. But I think our text this morning offers us a different perspective on a hard time. It's not just a threat. This right here, it's an opportunity. God has brought us to this time. God has prepared us to face it. God is aiming to use it for our good and his glory. I don't know how. I don't know what we're going to look like in a year's time. I didn't get any vision from Jesus last night promising a trip to Rome or a thriving Edgefield church in 2022, much less 2025 or 2050. But friends, we still have the promise of heaven, don't we? We still know where we're going. We still know that God intends to use us to get us there, don't we? That's still our horizon and our hope. And when we get there, well, I'll let John Newton sum it up for you in the final line of a letter written to a discouraged pastor looking for hope to hang on. Newton wrote, when you get to heaven, you will not complain of the way by which the Lord brought you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a providence that rules over all. 
that we can trust with what is far too big for us. And we thank you for this message from Acts that shows us Paul standing tall and confident despite it all because he knows who holds his future. And I pray that from his example and from the resurrection hope that was his message, we would find the hope and the perseverance that we need to honor you right now where you've put us. In Jesus' name, amen.